Welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. I just want to take a moment to thank my patrons, Rob, Robert, Robert, and MJ. Your continued support is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to join those supporting me via Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Stormageddon. Anything you're willing to give is a huge help to me. Uh, I really appreciate it. On to business. This episode is with the incredible rap legend, Jesse Dangerously. I've been wanting to have Jesse on the show for a while. We recorded via the magic of the internet. And so unfortunately, this interview ends fairly abruptly around the 35-minute mark. I had to fade it out because there were just audio issues that I could not reconcile. I was really happy to get to chat with him, and there's still a great interview here, even though we lost a little bit of it. And I'm hoping to have him back on soon to chat with him again. But please enjoy this incredible episode featuring rap legend Jesse Dangerously. I appreciate you taking the time what? to chat. You didn't get that chillin' on the record? That was gold. I'm giving you gold right <laughs> off the bat. I know. I just... I'm failing already. I've let us down. I apologize. Oh, come on. <laughs> Want to see a little bit more hustle out there, Stormy? All right, all right, all right. We're really in it now. Um, Jesse Dangerously, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It is an honor and a pre- privilege to have a genuine independ- independent rap legend on my thank podcast. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, actually, I think I wanted to start by chatting about your brand new record that's a collaboration, uh, if you don't mind chatting Ooh. about Danger Grove, which only very recently came out. It would be so strange if I would mind. I would love to talk about it. So um, so Danger Grove, for the listeners who are not in the know, is a collaboration between you and Lizard Grove, um, who had remixed some of your music in the past, and you did a mm-hmm. full-out collaboration for Want for Nothing. Um, tell yeah. me, Tell me a little bit about how that collaboration came to be and the process of creating that record. Well, in the in the first place, the um, the remix record that we did a couple years ago, um, she just cold called me, cold emailed me with a remix of I think my pumpkin spice song, mm-hmm. my legendary pumpkin spice song, and uh, she was like, "Please don't be angry." I took the acapella of your song and I remixed it, and I was like, "I'm not at all angry." That's exactly why I put out the. Um, acapella in the first place also this wonderful and she's like oh good thank goodness because i did this one too and she showed me another remix (laughs) nice mine that she'd made and yeah and uh i guess she was like testing the waters first and it was also really good in my estimation and i was like do you want to do any more like i'll give you more acapellas and she was amenable to that so she told me some ones that she'd like and I, i gave her some ones that I had recorded myself or like tracked down the engineer on a few that had been recorded elsewhere. And we cobbled together just a series of remixes that at the time was funded a month at a time on through my Patreon. And then at the end of the, uh, uh, what was it like eight uh, tracks Mm -hmm. that we released, um, seven remixes and one original with Michael kill. 
uh, we'd sort of gleaned enough money from my lovely Patreon subscribers um, to release it. So we made a, a, a CD and we made a t-shirt. We put that out in 2016. And we had a really good time doing it. We liked working together. Um, and we sort of had vague ideas of wanting to work on an album together after that, but we didn't have a starting point. And I think both of us needs like a little bit of external motivation sometimes to get going on a project. Like it's hard to just hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. And um, so it sort of it languished for a while. We kept in touch, but um, nothing happened until I went to, I went to South by Southwest um, and in 2017 for the, I think it was, my eighth time there it's a great like nerdcore meetup um every time it happens it's like rap camp and i went and i brought my friend eddie quotes who was a rapper from ottawa and i originally intended also for liz to come and we we're going to do a danger Girl set but she couldn't make it however while i was at um south by southwest that year i ran into Seattle nerdcore legend uh, Shabzilla, mm -hmm. and uh, it was, I think it was our first time meeting, yeah, first time meeting in person, uh, but we know each other online for ages, and she was really encouraging, she really wanted me to join the, uh, the nerdcore Facebook group uh, vocalist producer competition that year, um, which was an annual thing that I guess happened five times ever. And, uh, it, you know, you team up one de dedicated producer with one dedicated vocalist, and you do a series of challenges, and then you win a big pot of money, and uh, you feel good about yourself. <laughs> um, and one, like, it's neat because people often do, like, unexpected team-ups, like people who don't often work together will team up just for the um, challenges and something neat will come out of that. Uh, I decided to throw a wrench in it once she convinced me. And I was like, I'll go for an extremely expected team up. And uh, and I invited Liz to just join with me as Danger Grove. And over the course of that competition, we, uh, we uh, met five challenges. And, you know, some of them we... Uh, tried really hard to do exactly what was asked of us and some of them they just like sort of gave us an idea and we ran with it but we knew the whole time that by the time we were done we were going to have at least five new original songs um and we'd have a new project together so it was kind of the external impetus we needed and we did and we got more and more excited about the songs we were coming up with some of them did really well in the in the judging of the competition and some of them you know were quite rightly superseded by other uh, participants but uh at the end of it we actually did win the whole shebang just sort of like coming up the middle somehow um some of the other really good participants just i don't know they were spread too thin i don't know what happened some kind of mathematical <laughs> fluke but we won and we put that dough into uh making this this uh first debut album together and um we rounded it out a little bit we made a, a posse cut that featured some of the other vocalists who were involved in the challenge um because there were people who were really doing exciting stuff and i wanted to um 
I don't know. I wanted to be a good sport. <laughs> so I didn't want to be a sore winner. Um, really, I just, I really like collaborating. So I, I wanted to pull some more people in who I hadn't worked with before. And uh, Liz threw on just a couple more remixes of other songs that I had made because she's a remix in Demon. And then we had this, uh, this album. So I was going to put it out with the money from the, um, from the competition. Uh, but I sat on it for a little while cause I had finished this other album over the same period of time with, um, ambition from Backburner. We did an album called library steps and mm-hmm. I, I had a way that, that was coming out and I decided to shop the danger grove around a little bit. And I landed that on a label called Coke's records in, uh, in Western Canada. And so that had its own release schedule that pushed it later in the year. And it came out in a way, on a scale that, like, I haven't really ever put anything out on, uh, with national distribution and a publicist and costing all kinds of money, which is very uh, rewarding. So that's that's the ballad of the Danger Grove album, Want for Nothing. That's pretty awesome. And, and, and you're saying that, like, it's never, you've never released a record in that way. This is the first time you've re- it, released it to that scope with, with a label yeah. like that? Yeah, well, it's a co-op label, so um, I still wind up doing a lot of the things that I've always done self-releasing. Mm-hmm. Like, I sourced the uh, manufacturing, and I like wrangled all of the design and stuff. But it was with uh, it was with the knowledge that it was uh, going to have distribution, like physical distribution for the vinyl and the CD across Canada, and. Um, and you know, just resources in terms of tour support and and like being part of a a community of musicians. And like, I'm always I'm part of like several communities of musicians. Uh, this just happens to be a community of musicians that are putting their records out uh, in the markets where I'm trying to tour. <laughs> so uh, it was it was really useful. I don't know. It was useful, and also it's very sweet. They're they're good people. Yeah, I mean, and. And I've heard a lot of folks, I mean, we're both in the Nerdcore Facebook group, and like I've just, there had been a lot of buzz about it, and I'd been listening to your stuff for a while, but I didn't really know the ballad of Danger Grove until then, <laughs> and I've loved this new record. Also, I want to talk a little bit about the artwork for this record, <clears throat> because it reminds me so much, both nostalgically, of the animation I grew up with, but also the kind of animation that's kind of becoming popular again. Um, especially on like Netflix and a lot of these other major animators. But tell me a little bit about mm. the inspiration for this animated version of you and Lizard in this kind of um, almost Pied Piper look. <laughs> it's um, it's the direction is determined in part by another collaboration. The artist is Megan Lands and she does work in television animation. She lives in ah, Montreal. There you go. And she does she does a lot of her own like um comics, a lot of which uh she she draws comics for the nib online, but she also has published her own sort of uh, mini comics and chapbooks and zines. And I've been a big, big fan of her work for some time. I met her through a friend and um uh, she contributed a very short comic to the zine that accompanied my single in 2012, uh, Slept Through a Landslide. Um, but her art style has developed a lot since then. And so, something she's always been doing is these 
sort of like bratty animal characters, like mm-hmm. edgy animal characters. And um, I'm a sucker for semi-anthropomorphized animals. Mm-hmm. They um, so when I I approached, she did the cover for the for the Danger Grove remix album in 2016, and the uh, the new one is kind of a variation on that. But she did that one like with more restricted color palette and a little bit more like uh, silhouette and shadow, and it was spookier. It was these this procession of animals, like cute cartoony animals um like in a sinister wood for unknown purposes and uh and she did a t-shirt design uh spun off from that and so when we had the new record i still just i really saw her artwork as a big part of the character of our collaboration so i went back to her again and um she had recently been doing um a series of illustrations that were like late afternoon cityscapes. And it was sort of an absurd, it was like a city of, I think it's called Dogtown. It was just sort of like a cartoony city um, with houses that were shaped the way you might picture a dog would build a house. But the, um, the late afternoon sunlight was just gorgeous. And I was like, I really love how you're doing late like sunlight these days is there any way that could be part of the cover and she did a few mock-ups and um they, they weren't all as close to the um the remix album cover um but that one the sort of procession of animals um had the right feel to it and uh and at first uh, the way she drew us in there was a little different um but because uh, because one of my songs on the album is uh, is a re- it, one of the remixes is of a song that's thematically incorporates the French cartoon character Obelix from Asterix and Obelix. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got this characteristic giant stone that he carries around, and I'd say he's built a little bit like me. So when I when she, like she draw she drew a small boombox and. I was like, well, what about a huge boombox? <laughs> and she made it even bigger than <laughs> I think I was expecting. Um, and like the way my arms are folded under it in the in the illustration is very reminiscent of the uh, of the Obelix character. And um, and so yeah, it was a combination of things. But all the I think of the sort of Netflixy stuff that you're talking about, like like current day, like high quality animation is stuff that I'm really into. Yeah. And yeah, and genuinely like it's her job <laughs> to, to make. Um, so the aesthetic is, uh, is there right in the center of it all. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I like, I looked at it and it just, it's, it felt familiar, even though I, I like, I hadn't seen it before upon looking at it the first time I was like, this feels like, and the sunset now that you mention it, I, like I get a sense of warmth from it that clearly mm-hmm. resonates through the artwork. Um, and so that's really cool that she actually happens to work on the kind of stuff that I was referring to. Um, yeah, absolutely. You're good eye. <laughs> I try. I try. Um, <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Rap Hundreds because this was a little different from previous records for you because this wasn't actually a complete record like in one shot. Yeah. You had worked over that over a period of time. And so I've been spending a lot of time with your music 
over the years, but with this record in particular, I'd gotten way more familiar with it in the recent months after we were going to do the interview. And like, I'm mad. Like, I'm genuinely angry that I haven't been listening to it longer because there are so many gems on this record. Like, the fact that you do... Like, the first song I want to talk about is the song you do about Magical Girls and do about uh, Sailor Moon. (laughs) Because... Uh, I'm a producer in a burlesque troupe called the Ma- Magical Girl Burlesque, and like, okay, you know, and so like, our mission statement for producing burlesque shows is very much in line with you know, femme forward, body positivity, mm. sex positive, and you know, all the kinds of things that like the Magical Girl represents. These heroes that can do it for themselves. Um, do you have a long relationship with Sailor Moon and the like in the Magical Girl genre? Are you a big anime fan? I had imagined so coming from writing the song. <laughs> You have caught me uh, big time, and like <laughs> have I? specifically Sailor Moon, like really? that was formative to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I used to I used to watch it um, in high school in '96, I guess. Um, yeah, on my lunch breaks, I would be late going back to school because I had to see the end of the episode, and I was really emotionally caught up in it, and like that was kind of. I'd seen stuff when I was a bit younger. I saw a friend like brought Akira to my 14th birthday and like uh, the 80s Astro Boy was on Speed Racer were on TV when I was a kid. But like, you know, there was sort of a a boom, like an influx starting to happen in the mid 90s uh, that I was very much engaged in. And uh, yeah, Sailor Moon, even in English, it like... It got it got its hooks into me, and I there was I was into it very much in the way I was into the Wu Tang Clan. Like I I liked I was early early internet um, sort of like looking for for info from behind the scenes, and I was trying to find out like you know what were the hidden what was the hidden knowledge that wasn't evident, and so you know there are all these communities who were trading fan subs who were talking about. Uh, you know, how they changed some of the characters and there were actually, like, gay relationships that were turned into, like, like just hiding the gender of one of the characters or yeah. making other characters into cousins. And that was all... That all, was, like, felt like precious, like, secret, valuable information. And, um... Um... There was something about, like, the... The Neff Flight and Molly thing, uh... It was just, it was so sad, and I think, I don't don't know, like, crummy guys making girls sad, how, that's the oldest story, but, like, I, uh, I just, I would just bawl every time the episode came on, where, like, Molly, with her bizarre Brooklyn accent, was, like, (laughs) trying to cheer up Nephilite as he died, like, I was openly weeping, I didn't care who was around, and, like, um... It was formative. So, like, um, in my in like the first rapping I was doing, um, I already had some stuff that I was making on a four track. But I, when I uh, collaborated on a, the first thing that ever came out that I was on was uh, the Sentinels tape with uh, Ginzu Three and Naked J. And my rap name on that was Maxfield Stanton, which is Neflight's like alter ego. Right, he wants to creepily infiltrate the junior high and like later i saw it um you know eventually i got some of those fan subs and i watched hundreds of episodes way more than ever got brought over 
and I got really pulled into the mythology of the show, and I got this like unified philosophy from it that was like, kids, don't let anything steal your energy. Yeah. Like, and it seemed so compassionate, even though it was like the same thing, like acted out over and over again. That that message was really resonant. Um, don't be exploited, like by capitalism or by t- you know teachers who don't understand that you have to have a life or by uh you know parents who are too controlling or by trying to earn part-time money just they thought of thousands of things that like drain the energy of children (laughs) and we're like hey it's okay to engage a bit but don't get too cut up because that's getting destroyed by the forces of evil right um and then from there on you know there was lots of anime in my life um uh, that's like the end of high school, so I'm starting to have like disposable income. I was buying a bunch of manga. I was into Ranma one half. I was into uh, Dragon half. Uh, definitely. Um... Oh, oh my goddess! Amagami-sama was mm-hmm. a big one for me. Uh, Sorcerer hunters, uh, Elf princess rain. There was just tons of shows, and a lot of them were on that sort of formulaic magical girl tip because i liked i liked how it was like variations on a theme right um i liked how like just even subtle changes would would take a form and make it be about something else and you know also i really got into neon genesis evangelion when i saw that just a couple years later after i was obsessed with sailor moon and that has a really different vibe to it but um like the side note that he made to like keep himself alive um through despair yeah. uh no, there's no magical girl in that but it's still well yeah but that that without specifically like evangelion is one of those animes that i look at as an adult now and go how did anyone let me watch this in high school like how did anybody <laughs> let me experience this when I was so young because it's just the themes are so adult and the tragedy and the Mm. drama and you know the stakes are so insane in that show and like like I still can't always watch it it's one of those shows that like I need to prepare to watch it and then I have to experience everything that it brings up and then need to put it to the side for a while I I watched it in a really concentrated form Uh, my partner at the time and I started uh, going to this local university's um, like anime club where they would uh, they would get fan subs on VHS and they would have you know rent a room or whatever and and if you knew about it you could go to it even if you didn't go to the school so we were like I don't know 18 or something and um, crept in there and they watched they played the whole series and all the movies um, that existed at the time in 90 seven or 98 um like in a, in two sessions oh, like we wow. just did two intense sessions with these strangers having our lives destroyed and i was despondent for weeks after like yeah. i like i have i have depression <laughs> like i wasn't like that di- diagnosed but like there was like really obvious signs of depression in my in my high school life and in a way Though it was palate cleansing, it was kind of good to have something to focus this formless sadness on. Right. Like, um, 
maybe, you know, other people who are experiencing depression differently, maybe it would be very unhealthy to have something that's such like a hot crucible of, of moping. But like, <laughs> uh, it was kind of refreshing to not just be sad for no reason. I was like, oh, I know what's sad. Uh, it's this existential uh, horror of uh, trying to be like pilot a robot to save the world. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense to me, though, because like, uh, when I'm really sad even now or really depressed now, I will gravitate more towards the more emotional or sad music as almost like a mm-hmm. cleansing to like work through it. My favorite thing about nerdcore as a whole, and especially as a hip hop nerd, is that nerdcore has more emotional nerdy rap songs per capita than other branches of <laughs> rap in my experience. You know, um, I got to tell Dr. Awkward that blank pages as a song and as a record was something that got me through really bad points in my life because it's just such an emotional record um mm-hmm. you know and things like that and like what i love about your work too is that you're not afraid to express what you're feeling in that moment regardless of what it is i don't get the sense that you really hold back what you're going through when you're writing and creating this music i'm sorry the sound cut out on me for a second Oh, no worries. So I just said, like, uh, my experience with your music is that it doesn't feel like you uh, hold back your emotions when creating what you what you write. There's a sense of a lot of emotionality and expressiveness in the work that I've heard of yours. Yeah, I'm just I'm a I'm a sensitive blossom, you know, and that's <laughs> always been who I was even before I ever like connected with uh the nerdcore scene or anything that was like deliberately, um, I don't know, challenging macho narratives in rap. I was like, <sighs> I, I had every sense that like my emotions were going to be the, the, the driving force for whatever I put on the page. But it was weird. Cause like I had grown up, um, musically really focused on hip hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it was, after first like Ghostbusters theme and then Weird Al Yankovic at the age of like nine or ten, I heard Fresh Prince and I was like, "This is it. This is what I like." Right. And you know, there's there's sophistication. There's like lot like hip hop's been made about every topic always, but in terms of what was easy for me to find and like you know I could hear on the radio or the uh, the video shows once we got cable like there was a narrow emotional range that was being represented in a lot of what I was hearing. Like when there was vulnerability, it tended to be focused on things that were outside of my experience. Like it would be about, you know, dealing with uh, oppression that wasn't part of my life. Um, And I would, but I was like an emotional young person. And like I was developing and I needed places for all of my, uh, hormonal despair to be channeled through. So, like, I processed rap emotionally and, like, developed rap emotions. Um, and so it led to things like, you know, there were, like, Wu-Tang Clan songs that were not sentimental, really, but, like, they would resonate with me very right. sentimentally. Um, or even, like, the odd cypress hill or like pete rock or tribe called quest like just they'd hit this tone of melancholy even like das effects on the song like if only like 
it's just them rapping about how good they are in a really goofy way. But there's this melancholy in the sample, and I would put it on over and over again to like to feel that. So when when I started writing rhymes, it wasn't long before the emotional concerns that were on my mind all the time were what was like flowing into the into the rhymes I was writing. And uh, I had I was I was really tuned into um like by my teens by my late teens the the independent rap scene uh locally and also stuff that was happening in uh on the coasts in the u.s because of this great local radio show that buck 55 hosted um so i was hearing more and more examples of rappers who were um ch channeling emotions into what they were doing but there was still you know like all art there was like a uh, often the often the emotions were like through a lens of like well anger is how you deal with um not being glad about something and right um there's only certain ways you can feel about certain things and so I've always been seeking ways to like challenge that and and you know channel my emotions in ways that suit me better. Well, I think also as humans, we tend to gravitate towards what we like and find ourselves in it however we can, even if like that music is over the top or ridiculous or cheesy or simple, you'll kind of dial into what you like about it um, and then kind of mm -hmm. translate that into your experience. Um, did you first start writing rhymes in in high school in, when, in your teenage years? Is that when you first started to really write? Even earlier, well, I'd say I started, if there was a time I started really writing, that'd be it, but, like, almost immediately, like, within within a year of starting to listen to rap, I was trying to, like, write my own, and I remember, like, keeping a rhyme book or, like, keeping scraps of paper that I had scribbled the beginnings of, of rhyme schemes on. It was, like, really, really influenced by what I was listening to and even more than I would write my own at first at the age of like 11 or 12 I would just try to write down all the words from the song that I was taping off the radio and uh wait I don't understand like you were writing down the rhymes you couldn't just open a computer and look up the words and know everything <laughs> I don't understand what does that mean <laughs> all right well see by by caveman candlelight I'd fire up my gas powered wooden radio <laughs> yeah uh, um it's just, it, it, it makes me like it makes me angry sometimes now because i get a sense that we're around the same age like how easy it is like there is no delay in what's that what did he say oh let me just google it like right. it's so aggravating to me because i remember listening to the radio in in, in grade yeah. school and like writing down the words or like trying to find a physical copy so i could open the leaflet and see the words yeah yeah and i'm so into i'm so into those artifacts into liner notes i was always a liner note reader as soon as i was able to like you know be someone who was buying music I, on the way home on the bus or whatever i would be flipping out the the tape liner note and like trying to read not only the lyrics but like the shout outs and oh, the yeah. thank yous and the production credits and like figure out what that all meant like it was a magic spell that's how i learned <laughs> what sampling was and like that sort of pushed me partially into like making beats is i would see the names of other songs and performers in there and i try to find that music to see what it had to do with the music i already liked um that's how i started learning about sampling and so even now 
um, I always try to have the lyrics there for my records because I do think <laughs> like it was really formative to me to to want to write it down and have it sort of flow through me and like show me the practice of like taking words from my mind into a, a writing implement even if they weren't my words yet right um, but also I really valued having that coda that codex you know that the words to to pour over and study um so like for um for humble and brilliant in 2011 i released it as a book and i've done zines for my singles since then and uh i didn't do physical lyrics for the albums i put out this year but i'm doing a combined one a compendium of three albums uh I guess in 2019. Oh, that's awesome. It's because I really want to get those there. Yeah. I think a lot of people take for granted like digital music. Like, I mean, I'm for one who has way more CDs than he'll ever need. And I'm in the process of uh, uploading all of that music to my hard drive. So I can kind of get rid of the physical media to, to, because I just mm. don't have the space for it anymore. But part of it kills me a little bit because I like, the physical artifact. Like I have a few records that are signed by people that I'm keeping and like vinyl records that I yeah. keep. But like the the stuff that like I've had since high school that I'm parting with mostly just due to lack of space living in New York and just having a limited space for it. But like at someday people are not going to know what that stuff is just like some people now don't know what cassettes are. It's kind of the same thing. It'll be with the CDs and it's kind of a bummer because I was someone who did the same thing. My friends used to make fun of me because I would get a video game and then immediately open the booklet, not put the video game in. Not read start the playing. Manual. I'd read the manual yeah. first because I'm like, I, I want to know how to play and I want to know the story. And they'd be like, Yo, just do it. They didn't have to. They didn't always have tutorial levels back then. They no. almost never had tutorial levels back then. You had to hit the ground running. If you didn't read the manual, you weren't going to find out what the B button did until it was way too late. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, no. Kidding. Oh yeah, and I want and I want my I want my uh, albums to have a like almost a manual to yeah. them as a companion because um, I'm really into artifacts and if I'm I mean like I've got these big music collections I've got thousands of records I've got thousands of CDs over the course of thousands of years of my life and like um, I haven't I was about to say I haven't yet hit a time when I really had to pare down but the fact is I did twice I've moved across the country and I really couldn't bring it all and I just did anyway and I just I dealt with I could Economic fallout of that for years after. Like, I should have got rid of it all by now, but it's meaningful, you know? Like, w human cultures build libraries, and I mean, shrines for that matter. There's something about it. Like, having it, it definitely would be meaningful. Like, I like also having streaming services. Sure. At this point, like, I really like being able to just dial in whatever I'm curious about at any given moment but i also like having a space i can go and look at the things that have meaning to me and i've yeah. amassed them and i guess it's materialistic and bourgeois but like 
it gives me feelings and I am a product of my culture. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I think also for me, like I have a lot of regret on stuff that I've gotten rid of, like with the, over the last years with like Nintendo coming out with these classic consoles, which have stuff mm. built in. Like when I, with the early GameStop years, when I didn't know my ass from my elbow, as far as value of what I had, like I wanted that new PlayStation. All right. Well, goodbye, Super Nintendo and Nintendo. What do I need that for anymore? Mm. And you know, now I'm like, God, I like those stuff, those things sell for so much. And more importantly, like I would use it now if I had it, but I yeah. don't. And like I could go out and buy one and have it, but it's not quite the same. I feel like to like it's not the same. It, like to repurchase those artifacts, yours, <laughs> right? Yeah, there's one. There's one out there that it was yours, and it's out there somewhere still. And it like it was there in your life, like some like, I don't know one of those movies about a kid who has a favorite teddy bear that becomes their friend through adulthood or the giving tree like it was there in your life that specific one and like i've still got two atari 130 xes and two commodore 64s just in boxes that don't work because like those are my friends (laughs) (laughs) right like you don't want to let them go yeah, I'm like, well, there's got to be something in there. Can't I, like, build a synthesizer out of the SID chip or something? <laughs> like, it's got to, like, I, it can't just be garbage. Right. Because we had some times. And, and, and uh, shoot, I was going to say, I, I learned a lesson. That's it for this episode of Crash Chords Autographs. Our theme music is by Michael Kill. Our logo was designed by Case Aiken and Joey Amans. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. You'll help us reach more listeners. Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashchords.com or hit us up on Twitter at CrashchordsWeb. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque the Podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit weberless.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. <laughs>